And as horrendous as that was, it was beautiful in one respect. He did it for us. He wasn't there because he deserved it, like the criminals who accompanied him. He was there because he chose to be there. He had come to earth to make that walk to Calvary. And that becomes even more evident today as we see him arrive at his destination at the cross. And though he could have done what he had told Peter when he started swinging a sword to defend him in the garden, he could have called down 12 legions of angels to carry him out of harm's way. He did not do it. He wouldn't save himself. And so, he was crucified. Picking up our study in Luke chapter 23. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. There they crucified him. That's all that's said. None of the Gospels dramatize the crucifixion. No pounding of nails. No quivering of flesh. Mel Gibson certainly didn't get his dramatic portrayal of the suffering of Christ from the Scripture. The Gospel writers, as opposed to script writers, simply report what happened. They do tell of his treatment at the hands of the soldiers and of his scourging, but they don't sensationalize it. And when it comes to the crucifixion, all they say is that he was crucified. They didn't try to create a heightened emotional response to what Jesus did. They simply wanted us to understand that he was crucified on our behalf. He willingly went to the cross. He allowed himself to be crucified at an ugly place called the skull. Now, the other gospel writers refer to it by its Aramaic name, Golgotha. We generally refer, it, refer to it as Calvary, which comes from the Latin. But both words simply mean skull. Why it was called the skull, we can only surmise. Some have suggested that as a place of execution, it was littered with skulls. A more likely suggestion is that it was a hill shaped like a skull. In 325, Constantine's mother claimed to have found the place of Christ's crucifixion and burial. And the emperor had the church of the Holy Sepulchre built around the entire site. Within it is the rock of Golgotha, which many regard as just the top, the peak of Calvary. In 1882, however, Charles Gordon identified a site outside the city, which he called the Garden Tomb. And it is in the shadow of a rocky cliff that bears some resemblance to a skull. He proposed that Jesus was crucified there, and today it's referred to as Gordon's Calvary. The exact location of the crucifixion, however, is not what's important. 
What's important is that Jesus was crucified. And he was crucified as a common criminal between two thieves. That he wasn't himself a criminal is evidenced by the first words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. No criminal is going to utter those words to his executioners. In fact, I can't imagine anyone uttering those words not in those circumstances. We find it hard to forgive those who do anything to harm us. Jesus was forgiving those who mocked him, spit upon him, ridiculed him, beat him to within an inch of his life, and then nailed him to the cross. And the next time we think we can't forgive someone for anything, we need to go back to the cross. Jesus not only forgave those who nailed him to the cross, he interceded on their behalf. He prayed for them. And he didn't pray for them like the country song suggests. He didn't pray that their brakes go out running down a hill or that a flower pot fall on them from a windowsill. <laughs> if you haven't heard that song, you haven't missed much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he prayed that his father would forgive them, that he wouldn't condemn them for crucifying his only son. And unlike us, he didn't assume the worst of those who were attacking him. Even though they had planned and plotted to kill him for months, he said they didn't know what they were doing. They really didn't understand what they were doing or to whom they were doing it. For him to forgive them is hard for us to comprehend. In fact, Luke is the only one to record these words of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And some manuscripts actually left those words out. It's been hard for us to accept those words for generations. How could he do that? How could Jesus forgive those who were in the very act of crucifying him? Well, obviously, he was the son of God. And he knew why he was being crucified. His executioners were actually helping to fulfill a plan that had been placed from the very beginning. A plan that Jesus had not only authored, but one to which he had willingly surrendered the night before in the garden. But lest we assume such forgiveness is only possible by the Son of God, let me remind you of Stephen. As he was being stoned to death for proclaiming the gospel, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like Jesus, he felt no animosity toward his executioners. He saw them as tools in the hands of God. And he truly believed that God would bring good out of even the horrible thing that was happening to him. In fact, his faith and confidence 
may have helped influence one witness to his execution to some years later write, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Obviously, Jesus was called according to God's purposes. He knew what he was doing on the cross and why he was there. He was on the cross to make possible the forgiveness of the very ones who were at that very moment in the act of crucifying him. That's why he was there. And he was there because he chose to be there. He hadn't saved himself from going down the way of suffering, and he would not save himself from the cross. Let's continue in our text. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there's also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. You know, it horrifies us to think of Jesus or anyone on a cross. But the soldiers, they were used to it. And at first, they dealt with Jesus in a routine manner. Once they had nailed him to the cross, their chief concern was who got his clothing. It was a perk for the executioners. Mark tells us they cast lots to see what each should take. John says they divided up his outer garments into four parts, a part to every soldier. Apparently, they cast lots to see who would get his robe his sash, his sandals, and perhaps even a turban. But there's one garment left, his inner tunic. And rather than tear a seamless garment into four pieces, they cast lots for it as well. In doing so, they unknowingly fulfilled the prophecy we read earlier this morning. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. At this point, the soldiers weren't really paying any attention to Jesus. And the people were simply standing by, looking on. Most were nothing more than curious spectators, not saying much, just watching. Then the abuse began. And it was the Jewish rulers who initiated most of the verbal abuse directed to Jesus while on the cross. They were probably trying to justify what they had done and, and keep sympathies away from Jesus. They started sneering. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now, in spite of, in spite of the way they said it, it was quite an admission. He had saved others, they said. They knew he had done good. Other writers make it clear they then challenged him. 
to prove His divinity by coming down from the cross. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. They even said they would believe in Him if He would save Himself. But He wouldn't. He was there by choice, and He would stay there by choice. The soldiers then joined in the mocking. Reading the sign that Pilate had placed above him in three languages, they challenged him to save himself if he was, in fact, the king of the Jews. In the midst of their mocking, they offered him sour wine. It isn't clear whether this was an act of compassion or another way to, to mock him. But whatever the case, he refused to accept their challenge. No one could taunt him into leaving the cross. He hadn't gone to the cross to save himself. He was there to save others. And one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Matthew and Mark make it clear that, at first, both criminals joined in the insults against Jesus. But apparently one had a change of heart, no doubt as he observed Jesus on the cross. Luke only records one of them challenging Jesus to save himself and them. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other was apparently shocked by his boldness. Do you not even fear God? Now, that's not a confession that he believed Jesus to be God. He just knew that Jesus was an innocent man and that God knew Jesus was an innocent man. They, on the other hand, were guilty. To put themselves in the same league with an innocent man would be an affront to the justice of God. They were getting what they deserved. He wasn't. And in addition to that, apparently he had heard that there was a chance this really was the Messiah. And he apparently came to believe it. Now, there were a lot of misconceptions about the kingdom of God and the messianic reign. And he no doubt had some misconceptions as well. But he at least knew he wanted to be a part of it. So he repented of his previous attitude and asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And his understanding of the kingdom was obviously better than that of most. He recognized it to be a spiritual kingdom, not a political one. And one that could only be fully entered into after death. No doubt he did assume, however, that the Messianic kingdom would be inaugurated at some point in the distant future, after the end of the world. But surprisingly, 
Jesus assured him that he would be with him that very day in paradise. Now, this raises a couple of issues for us. One has to do with the timing of our eternal reward. And the other has to do with the place of baptism in receiving the promise of eternal life. Paul tells us that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And that certainly sounds as if we come into His presence immediately after death. But Peter makes it clear that this world must be done away with before a new earth, our eternal home, comes into existence. How can they both be true? One seems to come immediately and one seems to be cast into the distant future. Simplest answer is that the paradise Jesus promised to the repentant thief was not his final reward. It was the place of comfort to which the beggar Lazarus was taken by angels at his death. Abraham's bosom. The word paradise comes from the Persian for a walled garden. And what Jesus was promising him was apparently a beautiful spiritual place where he and the Lord would be together immediately after death. I really like that picture. But how that fits into an understanding of our future eternal home in heaven is a question that's been long discussed. Some suggest that in Hades, and contrary to what my mom thought, that's not just a nice way to say hell. Hades means the grave, the abode of the dead. Some suggest that in Hades, we have a place of temporary punishment or reward until the final judgment. Now, there's theological debate about whether you can change locations or not. I think the scriptures makes it clear you can't. That temporary place is a final decision, but not your final disposition, I guess. That can answer the question. Others attempt to resolve it by suggesting that it's merely a matter of moving from one dimension to another. And that the passage of time doesn't exist in eternity. Now, that one plays with our heads. But it may have some real elements of truth to it. When we pass from the physical realm into the spiritual realm, the eternal realm, we may lose all sense of time. And to come into the presence of God may, in fact, be, from the perspective of those still on earth, something in the future. But for us, it's now. Because everything is now in eternity. I don't know. It's kind of a complicated thing. And however the details play out, however, what is made clear is that Jesus promised the thief he would be in fellowship with him after death. What a great promise. But that raises for some a question about the place of baptism in the plan of salvation. They suggest that since the thief wasn't baptized, there's really no need for anyone to be baptized. 
Now, without going into a defense for baptism, let me simply remind you that the thief died under the old covenant. And it would have been impossible for him to have been baptized into Jesus' death and to share in his resurrection before they took place. So unless you are hanging on a cross next to Jesus, and he personally promises you a place in paradise, I think it would be foolish to assume the promise made to the thief applies to you. But let's not get sidetracked. The lesson for us here is the possibility of forgiveness and the assurance that Christ can give it. He willingly went to the cross to save others. And he began with the penitent thief. He wouldn't save himself so he could save all who would express their faith in him and call out to him for mercy. Indeed, the way of the cross leads home for all who entrust themselves to the one who died there in their place.